clip. That's what. What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show we have Nyla Rogers, and her big idea is that the current model of philanthropy that is being executed all around the world is completely outdated and oftentimes detrimental to the very people that we are trying to help. And the great thing about Nyla in the show is that Nyla is not just somebody who is talking about this idea. She is out in the world making things happen. So she's the founder of an organization called Mama Hope. Uh, they are this uh, empowerment organization that's active in India, Asia, the Americas, and they're focused on creating sustainable prosperity in the world by challenging these broken philanthropic aid models that so often lock people into the perpetual cycle of poverty that actually disempowers people. And what they do is basically fun projects that range from everything from education to women's empowerment to agriculture, you name it. But everything that they do is focused around the community is by interacting and integrating the opinions, uh, beliefs, and priorities of the very people who are receiving this aid. And so what's really fascinating about this episode is Nyla not only breaks down kind of some of the systemic forces that trapped us into this uh, ineffective aid model, she talked about the organizations who are really doing this well now and how any nonprofit can transform the impact they're having on the ground. And she also brought it back to the individual level just really thinking about why it's so important to think about giving, how this impacts our legacy, how we can be more intentional, more critical about the decisions that we're making to give back uh, and really to help people, whether that's in our own neighborhood, whether that's around the globe. So without further ado, Nyla Rogers. All right, so we're back in the studio with one of my favorites, Nyla Rogers. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You look so festive. You have on this this Hawaiian print dress onesie thing. Is it a onesie? It is a onesie for Good sure. Good for you. I'm a big fan of the onesie. Yes. There we go. So Nala, do you remember how we met? Um, I remember that we met at Summit. And I remember speaking with you specifically in the Mondrian pool. The Mondrian pool. <laughs> exactly. So when Nyla and I met, it was 2012. And at the time, I was running a children's nonprofit. And I went on to learn about her organization. And so why don't we go back there? So tell me a little bit about the organization that you were running mm -hmm. and still are running. And then that's going to be a beautiful segue into what we're going to be talking about today. So that's tell me a, a little more about Mama Hope. So um, Mama Hope is was started uh, way before it actually kind of generated. It was um, after working in the United Nations. I saw so many rooms that didn't include the people that were being served by the work and a lot of ideas being made on behalf of communities worldwide. And I was very frustrated with that because I got into the United Nations to be able to work directly with communities. And so this was something that was really just part of what I thought my purpose was, but also just kind of a longing in my heart. And, um, what happened is I started working for a foundation in San Francisco and in 2005 I was living there when my mom got sick with cancer and that's where I grew up. So I basically 
stopped working and took care of her. And she was someone who was a teacher and she did incredible work, but she had never left North America. And she decided if she could beat cancer, um, we would go to Kenya where she had sponsored an orphan. And, you know, kind of at one of those like late night commercials, she had decided when I went to college to fill her empty nest by sponsoring a child. But she really created a relationship with him. Like she wrote letters to him back and forth. And so what happened is that she decided we, we will go to Kenya to meet Bernard. That is the boy's name. And so we would stay up at night and we would talk about this trip and dream about how it would be to go and meet Bernard. And um, she, she passed away just five months after she was diagnosed. So that dream never really happened. Um, but really serendipitously about two weeks later, uh, I get offered a job by the United Nations as a consultant in this boy's village um, in Kenya. And immediately I saw it as a sign that I had to go and fulfill this dream of my mother's. And so I called the community to let them know I was coming. The woman, Anastasia, who runs the community, um, was very happy to hear that I was going to make this trip. And when I got there, what I found was hundreds of people holding memorial in honor of my mother. And I learned that she had actually helped the whole entire community, that her and Anastasia had formed a friendship and she had helped her build a woman's bank. So my mom had held like small fundraisers in her home and raised about $1,500. And the women that were being benefited by this, a lot of them were uh, single mothers who had HIV AIDS or orphans. Um, and because of it, they were able to get access to medication. They were able to keep their kids in school. And in all my time working in the United Nations, I had never seen something as powerful. And so it was in that moment that I decided to start Mama Hope. And so what has happened since this time of starting it? What has the focus been in terms of what it actually looks like in the world? I mean, it's been a complete journey of me having to look at my own uh perceptions of of the power dynamics between working with communities across the world and really wanting to live within the space of uh, being equal with the communities that we support and coming up against a lot of resistance in that with philanthropy. Um, but what we have been able to create despite that is we now have built 230 projects in nine countries um, serving almost 2.6 million people. And we have built schools and water projects and health clinics, but our whole entire model is how is it that we're building these humanitarian projects alongside social businesses. So the profit from the social business funds the teacher salaries, the doctors, the medication, so that community can become independent. And that is a model that we've created called collective development. Very cool. And so... And one thing that you just said is you use the term independent. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to focus on that. And then from this place, you know, I'd really like to shift into what we're here to do today. And mm -hmm. you, again, really opened my perspective up, I think, right after we met. And around that time, I think Warren Buffett's son wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, which is another one you pointed me to it, about the charitable industrial complex yes. of just kind of like what is the narrative that kind of fundamentally drives so much of our giving and our own kind of like back padding for this kind of antiquated model of 
philanthropy and you use the term independence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there, what is the big idea that you wish more people knew about philanthropy and what's happening in the world? Well, philanthropy by definition is a love of humanity. And I feel like we live in a philanthropic world, which is really based on power. It's really us and them. And it never allows communities to become independent. It creates dependence. And I realized that's because it was really built out of colonialism. It was built out of this idea that we still are going to keep this power, even if people are becoming independent. And I would like to turn that on its head and say, communities should be independent all over the world. They should be able to uh, determine their own futures. And as people who are working in this space, that should be our goal. We should be figuring out how to create economic opportunity um, and, and just equal equality and equitable uh, resources to anyone that we're supporting. And so often in this space, it becomes all about ego. It becomes all about the founder. It is driven by the donor, what gets built. Um, and this keeps people in poverty. It actually never allows people to progress in a way um, where they can truly change their lives without being dependent on an outside source for their livelihood. And so what are the biggest things that keep us locked into this antiquated system of dependence versus independence? Mm -hmm. Why does it still exist if we can show people that other models are working? What are the things that are standing in the way of a, of a shift? I mean, our economy was based off of the idea of domination, and I think still a very masculine domination where things like anything for people's survival. So let's say weapons, um, war, like all of these things were actually the most important thing. And people and children and nature are actually second to that. And women are second to that. Um, and so when we live and we exist in this economy, even in our philanthropy, we're doing the same thing. Um, we have a dominating philanthropy. And so we have to really change our minds about, you know, the kind of economy we want to have, the way that we really see people across the world. And the truth is the way that we actually show people in this sector where, you know, the kind of poverty porn that's out there that keeps people separate from us. And speak a little more. One, one mm -hmm. thing we like to do on the show is like when we use some of these terms yes. that not everyone is familiar with, when you use the term poverty porn, what mm -hmm. is it that you mean specifically? So I think it's the ads with the children with the flies in their eyes. And um, they're designed to make you feel guilty and sad and then give from that place. And, you know, I was very frustrated with this in the beginning because I was basically told by my donors that I needed to behave this way, that I needed to start to capture these images. Like if we had an image of a woman standing in a doorway, we could, you know, just write that she was a prostitute. And I thought this was crazy, that this is the way that we were portraying people across the world and how much power that people have in misleading people about a whole entire continent of people that are so diverse. And, um, and, and so able to completely shift their lives with access to resources. And so anyways, poverty porn, um, I feel is that kind of, those kind of images. And so we launched a campaign called Stop the Pity, Unlock the Potential that challenged those notions. And we got a ton of 
people watching our videos, sharing our videos, especially Africans being like, we've never seen anything like this before. People making their own parodies. And now it's, you know, much more of the norm. There is this Africa-centric focus um, that's happening that is amazing to see where people are coming out with totally different stories. And, um, and it's coming from the communities. And I really think like the storytelling has to come from the communities. And it, we can't be manipulating it and saying, well, that's the reason why donors give is because they're feeling sorry. Like, I think we've evolved further than that. I think that we should be giving because we're inspired about the world that we can create together. And we have to be balancing the media that we put out there so that that concept can rise to the top. And so I want to bookmark this because you just mm -hmm. said like we were talking about the reasons why we should give. And mm -hmm. so I kind of want to start on a macro level of understanding some of the systemic mm -hmm. influences that have created the dynamic we're currently in. And then I want to come back to the individual mm -hmm. and understanding what our current role and strategy should be for making the most of the energy of the actual kind of finances that we're putting into philanthropy, into those, those arenas. So if we go back to, again, some of the systemic issues and mm -hmm. you talked about portraying this this narrative how much of it comes back to kind of the issues of, of racism and sexism of of portraying an underlying kind of idea of what people are capable of and how that impacts these systems that we're giving into i mean our economic system was mainly made by white men and uh it's the 75th uh anniversary of bretton woods which was what put that system in place and basically uh, and Bretton Woods was what? Just Bretton Woods, um, well, Bretton Woods is in New Hampshire, and it was a gathering of world leaders and economists to come together to figure out how to create reparations for World War II, but also how to create the current economic system. Um, and that's where the IMF and the World Bank came to be, and some of these larger institutions, and that was also uh, the year after is when the United Nations was created. So we were in a different world then. You know, we were looking at how do we really repair a world after World War II. But the truth is, a lot of voices were left out of that. I mean, when we went to war, the women stayed and kept the economy going. Um, they went to work. And to not have women be part of that conversation about what our formal economy is going to look like is insane, <laughs> um, but really shows where we are today when we think of, you know, I think of masculine and feminine values and um, where things stand and what is important. And so philanthropy, I believe, you know, this is all my, my opinion. And I am going to say not based on fact, but based on what I've experienced in this space. But with the IMF and the World Bank, they just kept people dependent and in, in uh, debt to the larger, um, you know, to the United States and to the UK and, and to some of these uh, larger or wealthier nations. And that does create systemic racism and makes it impossible for people when they are in insane amounts of debt um, to be able to really build the world that they see as possible. And so I really am interested in like, what does the world look like if everybody comes to the table and we truly build an inclusive economy that exists of all these different viewpoints and looks at the world that we're living in today. And we, we really try to build something that's gonna benefit everyone. And cause that was actually created to only benefit a few. 
And I think sometimes we forget that that was the motivation. When you say that, you know, and I want to push back a little bit of mm-hmm. the idea of malintent in the mm-hmm. foundations of like, so do you believe that consciously when these systems of philanthropy were created, that this there was actually malintent to maintain these power structures? Or was it people that just didn't have the foresight to understand what they were developing through the cycle of aid, mm-hmm. right? And dependence on aid. I think it was a little bit of both. I think power has always been a huge part of this. Um, you know, the United States wanted to be a superpower. That was the time that it rose to become a superpower and created a world where a lot of the different countries in the world were dependent on the United States. And, um, I kind of think philanthropy was an afterthought. These institutions that were created were more about keeping a stronghold yeah. than actually really helping people because they would have done it differently. It doesn't and, make sense to make people in debt when they're already really, really poor. And when when did we start to open up to philanthropy being an afterthought to understanding the cycle that we're in of aid and dependence and the need to not only improve this model, because I mean, again, if you are a, a developed country who is mm-hmm. providing aid, like financially, that's a drain on mm-hmm. your own economy, but also just in terms of the efficacy of wanting to actually help people. Mm-hmm. When did when did we start to shift? When did we become more awake to the need to remove ourselves from the cycle of dependence? Who were like the the instigators who started having those conversations? Who inspired you? to open your own mind. Well, I mean, mine was more out of necessity. You yeah, because you saw it. Because I saw it. And I saw, you know, rooms of ambassadors get together where you would have an ambassador from Germany speak to the ambassador of France and England and talk about, uh, you know, small arms like rifles and talk about what an, uh, how necessary it is for the world to figure this out. And then when people um, from, like, Uganda and Rwanda got up to speak, all those people would leave and go get coffee. So I saw that the world wasn't listening to each other. And the people who really needed to be heard were not the ones that were actually getting um, any airtime. And so that was a huge frustration for me because I just felt like, how is it that we're going to create a world if people aren't really taking the time to hear other people's ideas? And when I was in rooms and we were making decisions on behalf of people, I saw decisions made like, well, if we really want to make sure that people have access to nutrition for HIV AIDS, we should just have it so women who are breastfeeding and children under five have access. But women have children who are all different ages. And if all of them are infected with HIV AIDS, that woman is supposed to make a decision if she's going to have half of her children live it's crazy. And those are the kind of decisions that are being made all the time. And the only way that changes is to make sure that people from the communities are making those decisions and saying, this is what we need to change our lives. This is why this doesn't work. And this is why we don't need it. And we haven't created the, the, the power dynamics to be able to truly create that. I think that this has started to shift in the last couple of years, which is really beautiful to see. Um, and it's definitely uh, created more independence for communities because people are focused more on how do you build income in communities as opposed to create dependency and just do subsistence uh, donations like 
yeah wells and schools and i want to i want to understand a, a little more deeply like the dynamics mm-hmm. of what that actually looks like for organizations and funding bodies who are going into these places because it's kind of like ambiguous to say it's like i want to integrate the community into these decisions and mm-hmm. it's like what that what does that actually mean in terms of who are the leaders here who gets a voice within there because mm-hmm. it on the surface it looks like it's really messy yeah to deal with that many people as opposed to having the benevolent dictator who's like, here's what we're doing. And then it's like decision done. Now you go and do something and you feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember like personal anecdote from my own journey with dreams for kids is I remember that um, we were probably about three years in and like now we were, we were getting several hundred thousand dollars of funding a year. And I finally had my first official board. And I remember that one of the guys really like the chairman of our board who had been a long time uh, council member had been really involved in local uh, philanthropy in Washington DC. And he asked me a question at breakfast one morning and he said, um, are you serving your need to give or are you serving the greatest need? Mm-hmm. And I remember just like that idea of like, I felt as though I was doing something pretty undoubtedly mm-hmm. good. We were doing adaptive athletics for kids with disabilities, but trying to understand the greatest need of the community that I was serving and understanding the inability for me to really answer that question because I'm not inherently a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And what, what that launched us into was creating a real consortium of all of the nonprofits that were doing adaptive athletics and everything's in the city and sharing resources as opposed to focusing on creating my own because they were able to to help me expand my own insight of what was really needed and what was really lacking. And so like we just talked about the difficulty of integrating mm-hmm. a community into the decision making of philanthropy. How do you do that? Where do you mm-hmm. start? Well, in the beginning, I actually have a really good story about Please that do. because when one of the first projects that I was asked to fund was a water project in Isiolo, Kenya. Um, and we, my board told me, you need to bring a water expert. And I went to Columbia Earth Institute. Jeffrey Sachs is a, an economist that helped build the Millennium Development Goals and, um, and found someone who was very prestigious to come with me. And he developed this whole entire water system that we went and pitched to all of these communities. And the communities all clapped and everyone was really excited about it. And then the night before I get hear a knock on the door as we are like celebrating the fact that we're breaking construction tomorrow. Um, And it was the chief. And he was like, Nyla, if you um, launch this project in two months when the rains come, it is going to be completely destroyed by floods. And I asked him, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, you just need to go back to the communities and ask them what they want. And so the, I went back into my team and I said, look, I am, I've come out of the United Nations because I want to listen to people and truly do what is right. We might have an idea. They do not believe it's the right it's the right idea. So I'm going to go back out to the communities and we're going to, we're going to figure this out. So the next day we went out and the first community um, told them, I'm so, I'm so sorry that I did not ask, but we want to bring water to this community. How can we do it? And a woman made me follow her out to the middle of the desert and she pointed in the ground about a mile out in the desert and was like, there's a water tap there. We just need about two miles worth of piping. We'll have water by next week. And I was like, great. How much is it? She's like, it's $1,500. And so I was like, immediately gave her the funding that started the next day. 
Then we went to the next community and they were like, actually, the Catholic Church has given us water. We just have to pay them $2,500 to open up the tap. Hmm. And I was like, wonderful. Here's $2,500. Then I went to the third community. They're like, we actually don't need water. We have water. What we want is a drip irrigation system. Hmm. And, um, and so we want you to fund that. So the original project was going to be about $50,000. And this ended up uh, costing about $7,500 or, or something really just minimal compared to what we were doing. And I just saw the communities know what they need. And there are leaders that have risen that the community trust to speak on their behalf. Um, and, and that is where everything starts for us now is I don't make a move until I hear from the community exactly what they need and what will transform uh, their situation. And they always know. And I think so much of the time people come in offering big amounts of money um, for things they don't need. And it is very difficult to say no to. I think that's true for everybody when money is being offered to them, Um, especially when you need it for a specific thing, maybe if it's not the specific thing. So creating an opportunity to be like, this is your project. You are going to 100% run it. It's going to be community-led. The labor is coming from your community. What is it that you want to build? That is always where we start. Yeah. And so it seems so obvious listening Mm -hmm. to you. What is the resistance or pushback that you get from, and you're dealing with funders at the highest level now. Mm -hmm. So what is the biggest resistance or pushback that you get from people when we talk about this type of communal development? I mean, it, it's really funny because people think it's revolutionary and, um, and they don't trust communities. And I think that, again, goes back to the media and what people have seen. Hmm. Um, they don't trust communities to know what they need because they've been taught they're the experts. Um, the people, uh, like I would say people in large institutions or some of these philanthropists that I work with. Um, and... So trying to really get them to understand that we're not doing uh, top-down development or bottom-up development. We're actually doing development at eye level. And when it's at eye level, it's a partnership. And the money that we might be bringing in to fund these communities is funding impact we would never be able to make without the community support. And this is a cyclical relationship. It is tied and the success of it is balanced. And so when I speak with philanthropists from that point of view, a lot of them are super inspired, but they've never really seen it that way. It's really been, I have the money, I have the power, and I'm helping people, as opposed to like, actually, no, this is people fulfilling a goal of impact together. Yeah. And so when I look at Mama Hope, you know, I see that you guys have, you know, again, built a community of so many of these organizations, collaborative working, connecting two different funders, whatever's most appropriate. When you look in the space now, like who is other than Mama Hope, are there any sort of systems or governmental bodies in terms of like on the largest scale? Are, are we reshaping how we appreciate aid? In countries, it's like you have kind of like war-torn areas, you know, who are Mm. are recipients of billions of dollars of aid every single year. It's like, is this happening at all on the federal level as it comes to aid? Or do you think that it really right now is just starting to to shift kind of at the NGO level and then it can kind of go from there? I think it's more shifting at the NGO level and the grassroots level. And I honestly think the ones that I've seen doing it the best are feminine leaders. 
Um, let's talk. So let's talk about that. Cause yeah. I really, you, you talked previously about the idea of masculine ver- values, masculine, masculine fe- values, yeah. masculine, feminine values. So just break that down in terms of what that means to you and mm-hmm. how that impacts the work that you're doing. Well, I can say as a woman leader, I have not had the same access as my male call male colleagues being like men who have started organizations at the exact same time. Um, Most of the women I know in this space have had very inappropriate um, requests from donors, from board members uh, of the sexual nature and just there's a power dynamic that exists between women, women leaders and and you know getting funding from men especially Mm. if they're older men and this i think does not exist as much with a man-to-man conversation about impact it's either i like your organization or i don't it's kind of straightforward but for the women what we have found is a lot of time is wasted because there isn't that same kind of dynamic there is always the the gender power dynamic that exists and I have found that my best donors have been women and my most um, because I don't have to deal with that I'm not sitting and having to constantly think about you know play you know I'm gonna paint a a clear picture of this because I want to make sure that it's really I remember that when I was in DC and one of my very good friends was running an arts nonprofit and just again, I get kind of like icky goosebumps talking about it is because she talked about this courtship that was happening of like, you think about with an investment for say a a for-profit business Mm -hmm. and there's a much more clear and dry, like you're investing in this because you're going to make money back. Yes. Whereas in the philanthropic context, it's much more of a one way I'm giving to you. I'm not, I'm not going to reap any financial reward for this. And so it was my, my female colleague was in this courtship and the man, she was not sure whether he was serious, who he had ar- articulated some interest in donating mm-hmm. in donating, but she wasn't sure. It was this ambiguous, like, am, are we talking, are we going to dinner to talk about the nonprofit or because you're interested in me sexually? Yeah. And because of that kind of one way dynamic, that power structure that's kind of inherent in the nonprofit space where you're looking for donations and not like fundraising for a for-profit project that I think that that can really get magnified. And so I really understand where you're coming from talking about that for women. I think that, um, it, it's a really interesting thing because all women donors, I mean, not women donors, all women founders that I have talked to about this just act like it's part of the job Gross. and it's totally gross. And what I've been trying to explain to people is, when you have access to funding, your model rises to the top. If your model is a very strict linear model, then that just becomes the norm and your marketing. And um, and I mean, like, we're going to, you know, we're going to build water projects all over the world and that's going to get people water. As opposed to these feminine, very holistic models that are looking at how do I nurture and grow something that is going to shift. And I see with the feminine, the feminine leaders, they are much more focused on that, but they are all hitting, like, even if they've been around for over a decade, about a $2 million mark that they can make. While we're watching our male colleagues who start at the same time become $25 million, $50 million organizations, and they're continuing to do a pretty one-sided model 
that focuses on the donor as the main the main focus of the model hmm. as opposed to the community um and so then that perpetuates that model forward and what i've been trying to say is that access is a privilege um and can we talk a little bit more about the efficacy of women mm-hmm. as it relates to this kind of like nonprofit work and development work and can you is it what is it called the woman effect or there's like the statistics about the efficacy of money going into like women entrepreneurs in the developing world and different things like that. So, yes, I mean, we right now only 25 cents, I believe, or, or it's a statistic like that goes to support women and girls. Yeah. So if you, you know, even if you just look all the way up, if you still only have 2% of VC funding going to feminine led companies, then women, you know, women are not getting as wealthy and, they want to give back as well. So if we're constantly having to go to speak with men about getting donations or speak with male-led companies, we're having to do this dance. It's just part of, as I said, part of the job. And it gets in the way of progress. So, um, and it gets in the way of these models that are actually really working, getting the funding that they need to scale and be able to show that, um, you know, become the new system. And so that's what I think is the big, the big problem is how are we actually getting catalytic funding to these new models? And they're not just women. They're like people of color who have new models. It's about access. Well, you said, cause it's important. You said feminine, right? Mm-hmm. Like not female, but it's like feminine and you're feminine, just, and yeah. you're attributing what values to the feminine that parlay into these kind of models for, I would say collaborative, yeah. I'd say community focused, um, it's much more about how to create independence. The way I basically describe it is it's the difference between spray and pray and nurture and grow. Hmm. So as opposed to like building a huge quantity of things, it's really about how are we nurturing and growing communities to stand on their own. Yeah. What, and one thing I, before we fully get off of it mm-hmm. is for men who mm-hmm. find themselves in this position because i remember that i saw a conversation like a comment thread about this recently mm-hmm. for men who find themselves in that position with kind of the power dynamic that's latent in the nonprofit and donation world mm-hmm. what can men do to be more conscious of that dynamic and what can women do who find mm-hmm. themselves in that situation to more effectively navigate it i think we all just need to be honest honestly you know when i when i am looking I meet people all the time and I want to be friends with people. But when I'm looking to ask them for a donation, I'm direct. Yeah. Um, and I think for a man or a woman to be like, look, I do see a, a romantic thing that could happen here. But I want to put that on the shelf because this is really what I'm focused on. Or I, I would like to make a donation, but I'm actually much more interested in you as a partner. And I just want to be honest. I think it's just about honesty. Yeah. And that would move things forward so much faster and also create a little bit more balance, I think, for these women, women leaders and, you know, people in general, but really for, for these women who are trying to run their companies and not wasting time because we all have finite time to do the work that we're doing. And when, we're, you know, unfortunately still in competition for funds with, yeah. with people I feel who have an, a much easier access to them. Um, we need to know where we stand. Yeah. And one thing I'm curious to hear about you on mm-hmm. is the dynamic of direct aid versus mm-hmm. social entrepreneurship and investing in 
like, you know, these kind of like conscious enterprise in the developing world and the dynamic there of, in terms of if we're looking to truly lift people out of the cycle of poverty, mm-hmm. um, it feels like there are going to be some instances where aid is the only thing that is available to some communities. It's like, again, I worked in mm-hmm. you know, people with disabilities and like it's, there's, there's a lot of areas where, you know, they are going to be the recipient of, of funding and yes. not going to be necessarily contributing back in some ways. And so I'm curious of how do you navigate that dynamic and what is the role of kind of shifting how we think about poverty and development altogether? I think it's hybrid. You know, I think in in life, there's going to be a need for just straight donations. And I sometimes get really frustrated with the impact investment field where it's like, I'm, you know, making money and doing good. It's like, well, impact for who is really the point. Like if the money that's being created in this community keeps coming out of the community back here, it's really not benefiting the community. It's still impact for you. Hmm. So what I always say is, how is it? that it's really about impact for the community. And when we do income generating projects, the money stays in the community. So over time, communities are building their own schools. They are able to uh, start their own businesses. And then they come and they say, you know what? We're feeling really prosperous. Well, we'd like to give back to Mama Hope. And that is the best feeling because I know that someone has moved from a poverty mindset to a prosperity mindset and they can feel like they can contribute in a different way. And so what I would recommend is making sure that your model is creating space for that or people will continue to be in a dependence model and they will never rise to a place where they're able to help their own communities in a different way. Yeah. So you just used a word that I think is really fascinating here mm-hmm. um, and it's mindset. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, you know, we're in, we're in the, the day of kind of like effective altruism and, and metrics for every single dollar spent and how that's coming back. And so much of the work that I admire of yours is advocacy work that is more around like messaging and, and movement building and you use the word mindset, Mm -hmm. but it's like the idea of if someone exists within a context where they feel that they are just a dependent, Mm -hmm. the recipient of aid versus someone who's capable of contributing, Mm -hmm. of creating their own community and success. So how, how do we navigate and direct funds to those types of, I don't know, what would the word maybe culture building activities Mm -hmm. that really do shift kind of a sense of ability in those communities. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you how do you justify mm-hmm. those types of funds when it's hard to track, right? The actual impact yeah. of them. What do you think of that? I mean, I want to stop looking at people's data and just numbers. And I think that we need to create new metrics to model actual progress. And we really try to balance this out with the way that we um, we work with our communities. We, every year, get all of our partners together for a conference where we're focusing on things like failure and, and perseverance and giving people a place to talk about all of the things that are going on in their lives so they can really see each other in a different light, so we can see them in a different light. And I think that that leads to a shift in mindset, is really being seen. And I have watched you know, uh, community partners that I work with go from not being able to look at me in the eyes to being the mayor of their town. Hmm. Um, and that has happened very quickly with us just 
addressing people as equals. And I think that anyone who is in this work needs to be doing it from that place, that we're trying to create a more equitable and just world. And that is the goal. Or they should get the fuck out, you know? Well, but when you say, so so let me challenge yeah. you and I'll say that like, so if I were to, what's the guy's name who started Effective Altruism, which is just the idea of like that you can quantify the the impact of specific dollars and like if we're just prioritizing like human life as kind of like the quintessential service yeah. that then you just have to invest all your money in bug nets because you're going to save the most lives and then it's like but so and what you're saying is again it's kind of this like whole person mentality right it's going back to investing in people yeah and i think you know there's a story where pe people think of these sil silver bullet ideas to like save communities um you know, the Gates Foundation is known for having funded all of these malaria nets that had um, had bug spray on the outside. So so and the malaria went down, but then the fishermen saw them like we can use this to catch fish, but then they killed all the fish. Mm -hmm. So it's like we have to know that there is no silver bullet. And what it really is about is relationships. It's really about how are we connecting with people so that what we're what we're funding actually matters. Um, and I think when you leave out that part where you trust communities and you're working from that place and you're building together, it's not going to be something that lasts long. Yeah. It's going to be just like a fly in the night kind of thing. Totally. It's, I think when I was reading your manifesto, you talk about it's again, that people have access to like both health and happiness of so like, it is not just these baseline metrics of the fact that you have, food, water, and shelter, which are essential, but that there do need to be these activities that provide people with a sense of dignity, you know, mm -hmm. like opportunity to create their own livelihood, to sustain themselves. Because if they just are, have these sufficing these basic human needs, mm -hmm. there's no opportunity for real human flourishing to sustain those things for other people. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of, a, I heard someone recently who, um, I forget the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn, Chris, Ryan, I think, mm -hmm. and he was talking about human progress and the idea that, you know, it's so easy to look at a talk by like Peter Diamandis and to talk about abundance and beautiful. And I, and I subscribe to that of we live in the best of times of you look at maternal wellness, you look at poverty, you look at war. And then he's like, which true, but also true is that you also have more addiction than ever. You also have more loneliness than ever. You also have more depression than ever. And so it's like the idea of if we just look at the data, we can paint a picture, which is true, but there's also another truth in there, right? That is like emotionally, psychologically, something is missing mm -hmm. and that it's important to acknowledge all those things in our aid. Well, I mean, I want to go back to the beginning, like if philanthropy was really love for humanity yeah. and that's like what we were focusing on and we really focused on that and we move forward with that being our goal things would shift because it would just be is this project i'm funding truly exhibiting love for humanity is this picture i put out of this child showing love for humanity like going back to that over and over and over again to make sure that we're moving forward in a way where we're just creating more love for humanity yeah totally. and so now i want to bring this back to 
the individual. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's twofold. It's Mm -hmm. so primarily an entrepreneurial audience that that listens to this. And so for those who might be thinking about actually starting some advocacy or potentially even their own organization, their own nonprofit, what do you think are the best questions that people should be asking Mm -hmm. before they devote their energy and time into this type of space? Well, they should first look and see what's out there and see if they can join forces with someone else because we don't need any more reinventing of the wheel. Um, I think that in this space, there should be coalition building of organizations coming together and going after the same funding and trying to make sure that everything can spread. Um, But I also think that they really need to question their why. Like if it really is just about them, and they should probably do something else. They should fi- find an organization that's doing the work and donate. Um, but if it's really about the fact that they believe they have something to, like in a different world and they see people who are creating that, it's a, it's a different feeling. So make it real. What's, what's yours? What's your why? My why is that there are people all over the world who have the ability to transform their communities when they have access to resources. And I can be a bridge to that, but they can transform their communities. And, um, and when we work together, we can, we can really truly like change the world. And my why is like, how do I transform this space to be more about love for humanity? Just going back to that very simple, place because you know love is where this started it started about love for my mom and i tell people when you build an organization out of love versus an Mm. organization from need and i think a lot of organizations come from a place of need and they just have a different intention yeah yeah it's powerful And, and i think one thing to point out even about your own journey here is i think that for a lot of people that look at the space of of ngos of social enterprise they see the celebrity founder, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you know, we go through so many of the companies that have found success there. And even in your own journey, it's like you, before you found this deeper sense of purpose, you were just in the space. Mm -hmm. You were just existing. You were at the UN. You were working for another organization, which allowed you to understand it, which just led you to these things again. And so I think that, again, I would completely agree with that. One of the things that I always I always talk to my interns about is the idea of GTS, which stands for Google that shit. It's like if you have an idea of like you want to help people and there's something that you enjoy doing, if you just put those words into Google, organization that does X and X, and you'll just find something else that's there. Yes. And the idea of, again, with those organizations, to find this personal sense of fulfillment, that just reaching out and offering your own resources was not just money. You don't mm-hmm. have to have money to do it, but even your time. Yeah. You know, of like, or your network, as small that may be, if you have 500 Facebook friends and you can like spread a mission even further. So that's helpful in terms of some of the questions that should be asking before they, they think about starting an organization. But what about on the, on the individual donation front mm-hmm. where it's like, what is, what is our responsibility as individual donors to think and be intentional about how we're contributing? I think you should question a marketing message and Hmm. see who that is designed for and and 
really start looking for maybe some of the underdogs out there who are doing great work, who have proven success rates and giving funding to them. I think that all the ideas that we need to change the world already exist right now. I just feel like because of the way our world works, they still need funding to exist and scale. So if more people were giving to, I would say, feminine leaders, people of color, grassroots movements, we would really start to see things change because those are the people who really understand, especially the grassroots movements, uh, what communities need. What are your thoughts about the marketing machine that exists within larger nonprofits now where it's always hard for me to wrap my brain around mm-hmm. seeing like the World Wildlife Foundation, which, you know, a large environmental conservation organization, but it's that when they're hitting me with Facebook ads mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, wait a second, what money is coming from the organization to come back to me? And so what are your thoughts about you know, when we are being marketed by NGOs, which is again, if they're doing good work in the world and this is magnifying their budget and they have to do it, what, what ethically is kind of like, how should we respond to that kind of stuff when we're being hit by like by nonprofit messaging? I think you should really question, um, the images first of all. Um, do you think it's ethical in the first place that nonprofits are marketing for more donations? I think that the the way things are built right now, it's just part of the system. Yeah. You know, no if area. we had a, a built-in thing to every human being that a portion of their salary is going to go back to serve the world at large, it would be different. But there is a need to have people have awareness and care and get involved in a movement. So, yes. But it's the way and the manipulation that that happens in that I want people to question. Um, I say there's always a difference between marketing a vision and making a difference. It's really easy to market, like to market your vision and market your difference as opposed to like, is that really happening on the ground? Do the people have ownership? Is this going to be something that exists 10 years from now? So what are the, if you were to give, let's say like three questions that Mm -hmm. someone could ask an NGO to actually understand whether they are having the type of sustainable impact that you're after, that you want to facilitate in the world. What are the simplest questions that you could ask? Like if someone invites you to their mm-hmm. gala or their event, what would you want to ask that person to understand the actual impact that they're having? I would want to know the community's involvement in, in uh, actual execution of the work. I would want to know... Um, what is the sustainability plan so that communities can become independent? Mm. And like, how long does this organization want to exist? Like, is it just going to forever be a way to get money or are they trying to put themselves out of business? Cause I really think that most organizations should be building and evolving constantly so that as you know, getting back to the independence thing. Yeah. And also, I do think over time, and this is where I think we're headed, that the ownership of these organizations need to belong to the people. Hmm. And, you know, that is my goal, is eventually that Mama Hope will belong to the people. To shift the actual organization structure of the people who are deploying this aid. Yes, exactly. So then it is, you know, it's, it's, it's... people who grew up in the communities that we support leading, running and managing this organization and its future in kind of like a a co-op 
kind of cooperative model or like what is it that would actually facilitate that you think or just even just being the owners just being founders just being the owners being the founders being the board members like really as a you know or more balance yeah because um and we've been doing that over time yeah and it's been something that has been game-changing for our organization so for people that are thinking about this conversation not necessarily individually, but in the context of being a part of a larger organization, mm-hmm. right? Where it's kind of in terms of organizational giving, mm-hmm. corporate social responsibility, and how how does that parlay into this? Into mm-hmm. Because a lot of money, obviously, coming from these places and a lot of individuals who have a, a budget, right, that they can mm-hmm. allocate to a cause that they care about. So what have been your efforts in that arena to transform CSR and, and organizational giving? Well, you know, kind of randomly, I've been focusing on the crypto, the crypto scene, because I feel like if we are going to make money out of nowhere, it should be all about redistribution to um, communities that need support. And so I just believe we're at this really interesting time where we're going to be changing over generations and generational wealth. And that our generation can just decide that everything that we build has a generosity component to it. Hmm. Um, and that we are funding different types of philanthropy than we have in the past. And, um, and so what, what I would say is if you're building a company, make sure you have a give back, make sure that your, uh, people are out there, and they're doing service in some way. Have it be part of your culture um, to be part of that. And then as well, um, with, with the crypto side, I think all of these companies that are creating new money, they need to figure out how to give money back to, uh, to people who need crypto more tithe. support. Crypto tithing. Yeah, crypto tithing. I mean, <laughs> I... We launched crypto for a cause. We raised about sixty thousand in Bitcoin, which yeah. was incredible. Used it to fund a children's center in Tanzania, and I saw that there is so many people right now who have this new wealth, and um, and so I started learning about crypto, and I read about Bitcoin, and saw that there is this person who started it named Satoshi and no one knows who this person is. But when I got into the blockchain, I saw that it's a real feminine uh, way to move value across the world. And I thought it was counterproductive to just assume that Satoshi is a man Hmm. and start a campaign called Satoshi's female and have now used that to start to raise money, um, for projects that are a little bit more esteemed than our normal projects. So like a STEM school for girls in rural Kenya, an incubator for women in Tanzania, and really looking at as we move people from a place of, you know, poverty or whatever, and they're getting to a place of how are they going to contribute to the world? Let's make sure those projects are being funded as well. So I just think we have an opportunity now to do things differently. And, um, the ways of the past have gotten us to where we are. And it's going to take a lot of courageous people deciding to do things um, themselves. Yeah. Well, on that note, as we're, we're nearing an hour, mm-hmm. is I'm curious of, you know, as someone who it seems so natural to care so much. Mm-hmm. So for people that might not be as engaged in this arena of contributing, of mm-hmm aid of the support of others around the globe what 
what is it that you know that you wish other people could know to integrate this way of being into their lives? Mm -hmm. Why should they care? What is the benefit to them just inherently for living this way? Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back to a quote that mm. Anastasia, who was the woman that was working with my mom, told me in Kenya. And yeah. she said, you know, uh, your mom is no longer with us, but her giving is what will live on. Hmm. And... Um, and that's really, it's everything that we give away is what lives on after we go. And for us to have a true legacy, it's really about what we give, you know? And I think so much of the time we get caught up, it's about what we have. We can't take any of that with us. And so to really build into your life that you are a person who gives, because that is going to far outlive any of us, I think is, is just a philosophical question everyone should take on immediately. Mm. I don't think there's any other way to end it but that right there, my dear. Nyla, again, it's uh, it's an honor to watch you continue to grow this movement and to see you just stepping even more deeply into your power in this space. And so for anyone who wants to stay in touch with you, who mm-hmm. wants to keep in touch with Mama Hope, what are the best places to connect with you online on the web? You can find me at Nyla at mamahope.org. You can also follow us and our beautiful pictures at Instagram at, at mama underscore hope. Cool. And what are the campaigns that you guys have launched recently that people should check out? Look up Stop the Pity, um, Stop the Pity videos, which are amazing. You can find our crypto for a cause campaign and then satoshiisfemale.com. Amazing. So we're going to list all that in the show notes. But uh, again, an absolute pleasure enlightening. Thank you so much for the time, Nyla. Thank you. Signing off.